Welcome to the ACCP Postgraduate Trainee Podcast, a podcast by postgraduates for postgraduates. My name is Nick Nelson, and I am the current PGY2 Critical Care Pharmacy Resident at University of Michigan Health in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Today, our guest is Dr. Jerry Bauman, who is the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of American College of Clinical Pharmacy and Dean Emeritus at University of Illinois at Chicago College of Pharmacy. Today, we'll be discussing retrospective research studies. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bauman. Thanks a lot, Nick. Glad to be here. Dr. Bauman, I have a few questions for you with respect to a recent editorial that you and your group published in JACCP. My first question for you is, uh, what do you view as the role of retrospective research studies within the medical literature? And a follow-up for that, how should clinicians view and or use this type of research? That's a good question. Thank you very much. You know, first, I'd like to say that they're very common because they're relatively easy to do, a lot easier than prospective trial in which you have to accumulate patients and have very strict uh, entrance criteria, do randomization and blinding. I mean, it, it's a lot easier to sort of accomplish. And they take little, if any, funding. You know, most major trials that are prospective uh, will require some degree of funding in order to, to complete them. So as a result, you know, particularly for our journal and even for the journal pharmacotherapy, they're, they're relatively common uh, types of studies. But the important thing to remember is that they are so-called hypothesis generating. The results that in the conclusions that you reach from a retrospective uh, trial in which you, for example, look at medical records have to be verified uh, by other studies, hopefully uh, randomized controlled trials. So they're, they're really good at sort of generating ideas, but they're not conclusive. For example, you can't determine true cause and effect by a retrospective uh, trial. The listeners should know that there are some pitfalls uh, to doing these trials. I mean, one is what's called sampling bias. You're going back and looking at the records of patients. Uh, how do you know that, that that sample that you've chosen is reflective of the entire population of those types of patients. The other thing is when you do these trials, and I've done a number of them, you have uh, problems with missing data. Because you're not accumulating it prospectively, you go back and look at it. Some of the patients may not have the data that you're looking for, but still meet entrance criteria. And then the other problems are, are they generalizable? Mm -hmm. um, is the population that you picked to study, does that truly reflect the total population, and can you generalize the results to other settings or other sites? And last, are they of sufficient size? That's usually one of the biggest problems that we see, and that is they're small trials, and so it makes it difficult uh, to actually make firm conclusions. But they can be overcome. These issues can be overcome. I think importantly, uh, last, is that they can be very impactful and important, they can, and particularly if they're verified uh, by other trials. I'll give you an example of a study that I did when I was younger in which we just accumulated patients with quinidine-induced torsade. That was one of the first trials to do that with a large series of patients. We didn't have a control group. We just looked at the profile of all these patients and then sort of imagined what could be risk factors for quinidine or drug-induced torsade. And as it turns out, you know, that trial became pretty impactful and it was verified by others. So they can, they can be important and they can have an impact on patient care. 
Yeah, I think I definitely agree with that. I view them uh, as well, mostly as hypothesis generating, but can certainly have a role in changing some practice earlier on. Dr. Allen, my second question for you. So the editorial had many great recommendations for investigators to consider when they're designing, conducting, and even uh, writing or publishing their retrospective research studies. Um, which do you view as you know, the most important or where should investigators really devote a lot of their time when they're designing or conducting this, these types of research studies to really make sure that they, they get it right? It is really crucial to, first of all, prepare uh, for the study, to do an exhaustive literature search, to make sure that there are not other studies out there that are looking at that have already looked at the same question that you're embarking on. More than once, I've gone to the literature and found out that you know what I'm asking in patient care situations, the scientific question I'm asking, has already been dealt with by others. There's a lot of smart people out there, and they tend to come across the same questions that that you might in your own practice. Uh, So I think preparation for the study, doing an exhaustive literature search is crucial. But in terms of the mandatory things that, that one would have to do is you have to get IRB approval. One might think that, you know, that's a no brainer. Everybody knows that. Well, you'd be surprised. We get some studies that come through JACCP that uh, there's no mention of, uh, of IRB approval. One of the most common uh, misconceptions is, for example, in a quality improvement study, when the investigators first went to the IRB, the IRB said, well, this is, this is quality improvement for only internal uses to improve the practice uh, in your hospital, for example. That's no longer the case once you decide to sh- disseminate and share your results and publish it in a journal. Now you're going outside your institution. So it still needs IRB approval, even if it's expedited um, or exempt. So that's mandatory. I think the other things that is to really look at the design of the study and, and in your paper fully describe what your methodology was Uh, in going back and looking at these patient records. You have to list, and these should be determined uh, before you do the study, what your entrance criteria are, what your inclusion and exclusion criteria are. And I think, as we'll talk about in a little bit, it is important to try to get a determination on what is the proper sample size, how large is it. One of the biggest problems that we see in retrospective studies is they're simply not big enough to come up with firm, you run the risk of a, a type 2 error in which you don't find a difference, uh, but there actually is one. You know, to sort of finish up, I, I think there's a couple other things that when you're designing the study that would really help it when it's retrospective. Uh, one is to expand the number of sites to more than just your medical center, because that helps generalizability. Most of the studies we get people have accumulated records from their own institution. Really would be helpful if you're able to expand that to other institutions. The other thing is is to try your best to come up with some type of comparator or control group. Without it, you're simply making observations, and that's why it's called observational research. But if you can craft some type of comparator group, it'll help you determine your results and the impact what you're trying to 
determine. Yeah, I think that that's all great uh, recommendations. Even in my short career, I've had issues with you know IRB with quality improvement projects, them not wanting to or not deeming it appropriate to approve or exempt. But it is definitely something that we all need to make sure that happens before we are submitting for publication. Yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit more on, on recommendation eight regarding the sample size and power calculations? I think that you know this recommendation is something that we always think of in prospective studies or trials, but less so with retrospective studies. But in this editorial, it was classified as a mandatory recommendation to provide that those calculations. So could you provide us some guidance on when to perform these calculations, whether that be you know, before we embark on the study or after we've collected some sort of data already to, and to see if we've met power or a, a decent sample size? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I, I should say, you know, in our editorial, we listed that as mandatory. Unfortunately, that's the one that people, usually people get all the rest of them that are mandatory, but they, they oftentimes miss that one. And once you complete the study, doing a retrospective power analysis on your results is probably not helpful at all. It's crucial that you start it. You do it before you begin the study because that becomes your goal. How many people do you need to enroll? How many charts do you have to review uh, that meet the inclusion criteria that, that need to be included in the, in the study to actually tell a difference? And of course, this is when you do have some type of comparator group in which you can compare the intervention group to to a control. But to your first point, obviously, when people are doing large multi-center uh, randomized controlled trials, it's, it's crucial to do a sample size determination. But it, it's, it can be just as important uh, when you're doing retrospective studies. And there are several things that are that go into that calculation. I mean, one is you need to know what your level of significance is, and of course, by standard, generally it's it's p less than zero point five. You next need to know what's called the power of the study, and that's by convention again generally determined at eighty percent. And what that means is, eighty percent of the time, you're going to be satisfied that uh, you are able to tell a difference with the sample size that you have, and twenty percent of the time you're not as confident in that. And, and the last is what's called effect size. What that means is what is the expected number that you need to tell a difference in your groups? The way you get that, whether it be a prospective trial or a retrospective trial, is by the literature, is that you make an estimate of what would be the difference between these two groups by looking at the literature. And it, it should be cited when you report your sample size determination and your methodology, that we use the this literature to determine what would be the expected difference between the two groups or what's called the effect size. So you need those three things and there's this formula you plug them into and you come up with, with a number. You can see that when you do that, it's based really on assumptions. You're assuming these things. Level of significance and power is pretty standard, but you're estimating your effect size by the literature. So it's a it's an assumption, and people can question your assumption. 
They can say, you know, you use the wrong effect size in calculating your sample size determination. That's what you should do uh, before you start the study. And then you can be more confident that the number of patients that you enlisted in the study, the number of charts you reviewed, you can be somewhat confident in your results. So it, it is important. It's probably one of the things that I think I wish that authors would do more frequently for retrospective trials. So Dr. Bauman, a question based on that, because I've done a couple like very small retrospective studies. What do you do when the literature doesn't really provide you a lot of guidance on what that effect size should be? In my experience of, of doing these type of trials, it's generally possible to come up with some estimate what the difference in the two groups would be expected to be. I mean, that's been, that's been my experience. And like I said, it's an assumption. I mean, it might be an assumption based on, you know, weak, <laughs> relatively weak data, but it's, but it's an assumption. If there's absolutely no literature that you can fall back on to um, estimate your effect size, then, then I guess you're right, then you can't do one. In that case, the more patients that you're able to enlist in this study, then you know the, the more chances you are of, of not having uh, false results because of small samples. So I guess that's my only recommendation in that case. But to be quite honest, in my experience, I haven't come across that. I've usually been able to uh, somehow uh, estimate what a potential difference between the two groups would be. When you do these things that we recommended in uh, this editorial, it just improves the uh, sophistication of your, of your analysis. And to be quite frank, it improves the chances of acceptance. When, when reviewers look at your methodology and have gone through these points and, and, and actually notice that you did a sample size estimation and that you tried to enlist patients from other sites and that you're clear on your inclusion and exclusion criteria. And, you know, one other thing that we recommended in that editorial is to have standard forms for data collection and to train the people, because sometimes investigators will have uh, trainees do the data from, the char from charts, and you have to train them, and you should practice and go through a couple sample charts to make sure that what's being collected is actually what, you're, what should be collected. Putting that, that type of uh, granularity in your methodology section improves the sophistication of your paper and also helps it be reviewed positively by external referees. Yes, and I think speaking to your training of trainees and data collection really speaks dividends with the data collection process and ensuring its validity, speaking from personal experience. Absolutely. My last question for you, Dr. Bauman, is what advice would you have for learners who are about to embark on their first, possibly their first retrospective research project or research project in general? Yeah, I have a few. As you're embarking on it, it's, it's always wise, and, I, and I'm sure you know this, it almost goes without saying that um, it's best to, to work with a more seasoned investigator uh, to sort of help guide you through uh, the design and the creation of the, of the project. I would say, you know, retrospective trials that, that use existing patient data, like from medical records and, and, other, and other databases, they're perfectly suited for resident and fellow projects because, you know, they're doable 
and they don't they don't as I mentioned they don't take a lot of funding so I think a lot of resident and fellow projects and PGY2 projects are probably retrospective char reviews the other thing that I would do that I that I hadn't mentioned yet is you can look at our editorial I think that'll help you help guide you but there's also a whole list of guidelines within what's called the equator network and you can google that it's equator just like the middle of the earth and you'll see that within the equator network they list it's like a clearinghouse for all these type of guidelines for different types of studies they have one for instance it's called the strobe uh, checklist or the strobe guideline and that's for what's called observational trials and retrospective trials are under the umbrella of observational trials. So you can use that checklist to help you prepare. And you'll note that it's it's not dissimilar. It's a little bit more detailed than our editorial, but it'll help you. You'll also note that they have other checklists and guidelines for other types of studies, like economic analysis, uh, quality improvement studies, so on and so forth meta-analysis, systematic reviews, et cetera. So that uh, website and the content within is very helpful to look at first. And as I mentioned uh, previously, it's, it's just important to do a lot of the legwork before you start to be prepared to collect data. It's important to have all your ducks in a row with IRB, with your collection forms, uh, with how, how your design and your inclusion criteria, it's crucial to, to be prepared before you dive in. So I think those are probably a few recommendations that I would have. And I would urge residents or others that are listening to this to really check out uh, the Equator Network website. I think that's great advice. And I'm going to have to poke around the Equator website myself. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bowing, for joining us today on the podcast to discuss retrospective research studies. I'm glad to be here, and I'm, I'm glad that, that you guys picked this as a topic. I hope it, I hope it helps as you um, venture into your research. So thank you, Nick. I'm sure it'll help several learners. Well, thank you for listening to the ACCP Postgraduate Trainee Podcast, a podcast by postgraduates for postgraduates. For more episodes, and other resources, visit our website at accp.com slash R-E-S-F-E-L. Our theme music is titled Jupiter Smile by the 126ers and is provided through YouTube's free audio library. Please subscribe to the ACCP podcast to be notified of new episodes.